you've landed at the High Motor Podcast. I hope everyone is doing well this week. Andrew Doughty here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. Great show on tap this week, the High Motor Podcast, coming to you from South Carolina this week. In a minute, I'm going to have Jeff Perlman on the show. Jeff, he released uh, his latest book in the fall, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. So I have a couple things on that, but mostly I want to spin off of what he wrote about, what he's talked about in interviews, and have what what I think is going to be an interesting conversation with him. And then afterward, after he jumps off, I want to give my take on a couple of things. But quickly, you can find all episodes of the High Motor Podcast on iTunes and Spreaker. You can find us on that Apple Podcast app. And if you're looking for some uh, vacation, some uh, commute listening, you can scroll back, listen to those episodes. I had Ben Bolch on last week. Ben from the, excuse me, from the Los Angeles Times breaking down UCLA candidates. He had some interesting comments on the Pac-12, their widely publicized issue, uh, issues lately, especially that, that John Canzano series from the Oregonian back in the fall, kind of going through all the Pac-12's problems. Uh, why he thinks that those issues could actually help UCLA land those guys. So interesting take on that. You can check out that episode. You can hit subscribe to get all future episodes downloaded Immediately. All right, let's jump in with Jeff Perlman. Jeff, thanks for the time. I want to start here, if you don't mind. After that BuzzFeed Cohen Trump article the other day, you tweeted that when you were writing for Sports Illustrated, you said, when I was at Sports Illustrated, everything went through five layers, and I was writing about the Padres. And when you said that, I went back to 1999, that John Rocker story, and I'm curious, how many layers did, did that go through, or... I guess maybe the better question is, how did that process play out? Was there any objection to publishing that type of article? No, it was, uh, but that's a good question. It went through a lot of layers. It, um, first of all, I had the entire interview taped and the fact checker. So as I had a whole army of reporters who would fact check the stories, the fact checker listened to the entire tape to make sure what was said not only matched the words, but matched the intent of the words. Um, then you would have, you know, the baseball editor, a managing editor, senior editor, I'll read through the story, comb through it, make sure it was accurate, uh, make sure, again, make sure everything he said wasn't, nothing was taken out of context. So, Jeff, congrats on your latest book, uh, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Seems to be getting great reaction, positive reviews, but I want to go back kind of before it. Uh, you were quoted in an interview, you were told that Nobody really wanted a USFL book. You, you were told that there wasn't a market for it. Uh, then you got some interest and obviously wrote it. And I'm unsure when exactly that happened, when that what you called your dream project became a reality. But I'm curious on that. Do you think that those who told you that there wasn't a market were just plain wrong? Or did something change over whatever period of time that did create that market for it? No, I think, uh, I think if I were in their shoes, I might be like, why? what's the market for this book? It's a league. Not that many people remember. It was 30 something years old. Who cares? Most people don't know the USFL. If you're under a certain age, you certainly don't know the USFL. Um, I understood it. I always understood it. I just thought, I just really wanted to write the book and I really believed it to be a great book. And the other thing is, just being honest, like you, you have to be able, you have to be willing to be a complete and total prostitute for your project. And you have to be willing to sell it, and sell it and sell it and push it and push it and push it. And this book especially, because so many people told me you can't sell, I was like, all right, I'm going to do my all to make it sell. So I don't think they were wrong. I mean, they weren't wrong. Their logic wasn't um, without logic, for lack of a better way of saying it. I, I just, 
I just really wanted the thing to sell. So I've never promoted a book harder, never pushed harder to have a book sort of do well on the market. And I think that's a big factor. So regarding that logic, and I'm wondering if this might be a piece of it, um, in your book and then in interviews you did afterward, you very clearly separated your opinion of Donald Trump as president versus Donald Trump as a team owner in the USFL. Um, you said he was actually a great team owner, paid his players, all that stuff, and you think he would have been a great NFL owner. Was that ever a piece of the conversation with your agent or publisher or whoever that some people might struggle to separate their opinion of Trump as president versus Trump's role in the USFL and therefore might not be interested in a book like that? No, because if you, the only reason I got the USFL deal was because I attached it to the Brett Favre book I wrote. And I got a good, you know, decent salary for Florida, a crappy salary for, for the USFL. So I think as far as my, my uh, publisher went, I think when all of a sudden Trump became relevant to a book that they didn't even think would sell in the first place, there was a huge sort of like, wow, holy crap, this might actually have a chance of doing something. One of the reasons they didn't think the USFL was a very good idea for a book is what's the tie-in to now? And all of a sudden, not only do they have a tie-in for to now, the guy who's the president of the United States is a central character in the book, and it tells a lot about his sort of who he was and where he came from. So I don't think there was never a, oh, I don't know how this is going to go over. It was, wow, this is a great bonus to this book, and that's, that's pretty good. So the XFL, that's coming back in 2020. Uh, Alliance of American Football, as I'm sure you're aware, that's kicking off here in a few weeks. I think the date is uh, February 9th, I believe. What lessons do you think that, that can be learned for those two leagues from the USFL? I mean, you can't take out the NFL directly. It's unrealistic. I think uh, regional, having your teams regional is a, is a great idea, which the USFL did as far as if you have a team in Birmingham, Alabama, stock that team with guys who played in Auburn and Alabama, great day if you get to the schools. I think having big-name coaches is important for both marketing efforts and for coaching, but mainly for marketing efforts. So, you know, you got a guy like Spurrier, fans are immediately interested. But I also think the one thing that the USFL didn't do that these leagues should do, is if a player is plucked from an alliance team by the Cleveland Browns or the Dallas Cowboys, the alliance needs to celebrate that and sort of take the stance of, look, we, you saw them here, and now they're there. Like, this is the place you catch the future stars. Uh, I think you follow those things have a much better better shot. So you mentioned the player allocation system. Uh, for those of you who, who haven't seen it, um, just like Jeff said, like, for example, Trent Richardson, former Alabama player, um, he's on the Birmingham roster. So I'm curious, in, in your research, this player allocation system, how did that run in the USFL? Did, was that, did it run smoothly for them? Was it a positive for them? It was great. It worked out great. It was one of the big bonuses. Um, they have a... Uh, you were assigned four schools. I think it was four schools in your region. So, just an example, the, the, the Tampa Bay Bandits were overloaded with Florida players. And the general idea was, look, you saw this kid in high school, you saw this kid in college, now see him in the pros. And it worked out great. It was one of the smartest things. They did a lot of dumping, but it was one of the smartest things they, they did. And you can't put a price on sort of loyalty to the product. And one way to build loyalty is, is geographically. So you mentioned that the NFL can pluck a guy, let's say from the Cleveland Browns, sign a kid from, from Birmingham. Do you see that kind of working the other way? Do you see the NFL ever embracing or, I guess, maybe needing is the better word, an independent or a minor league? I don't think it needs it. I don't think it needs it. I mean, it's tried different leagues over the years. It's aligned with the uh, Arena League. It had uh, NFL Europe. The bottom line is, really, NFL, you're making boatloads of money. Your sport is more popular than any other sport in the world. Everything struggles these days with 
a million different entertainment options and Netflix and Hulu and I'm on my phone and I don't need to watch the game and somehow the NFL, you know, thrives and continues to thrive. So, I mean, could it possibly have a minor league system that works? Sure. Does it need it? I don't really think so. I had Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated on the show a few weeks ago and uh, this was uh, the week in between the Cotton Bowl and before the National Championship when there was, you know, a little bit of chatter about you know, Trevor Lawrence, he's being forced to stay at Clemson for another two years, not eligible, all that stuff. And I'm curious your take on this. Like, if the Alliance of American Football, for example, is successful, is able to give players, you know, the six-figure contracts, things run smoothly, could you see a scenario in which, um, like the Alliance, for example, is a realistic option for players who, who don't want to wait for the NFL, like let's say Trevor Lawrence would go play there for two years and then go to the NFL? Is that at all a realistic possibility in your opinion? No, see, I don't think so. Because, number one, what did the USFL end? They're trying to spend NFL dollars. And also, I'm pretty sure the Alliance, all the teams are centrally owned by the league. So, it would take the league itself making this huge financial commitment to start taking players that the NFL would be interested in. I mean, the only way I guess it could work is, so let's say there's a kid like Trevor Lawrence who just absolutely hates being in college. He doesn't want to be in college anymore, but he can't be drafted by the NFL. I mean, I guess like you said, if it actually the alliance sort of views itself as a minor league, we can't pay you millions of dollars to play here, but we can pay you $200,000 to play here and sort of serve as a development place and make a little coin. But I don't think these leagues can possibly start spending millions and millions on players. I just just think it's a recipe for total disaster. And it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're also skeptical that there are going to be, I mean, it seems like Trevor Lawrence, from all accounts, he is enjoying being at Clemson. He has no interest in going to the NFL, even if he could. He's enjoying college football right now. It seems like you're skeptical that there are going to be even that many players who just don't want to play college football and who are actually willing to, to roll the dice and go to the AF, for example. Well, I think if the money was good, they would. I mean, a lot of these kids know they're being used by the system and they just want to go pro. I guarantee you, a freshman, you know, you know freshman halfback could skip college and go straight to the NFL and he knows he's going to make five million a year, he'd do it. But, you know, those are opportunities aren't there. So, I mean, look, it's an interesting idea, actually. You're a kid from, like, when Hershey Walker joined the USFL, you know, he came out after his junior year. At the time, the NFL didn't allow that, so he went to the USFL. He came from Wrightsville, Georgia, and his family was lived in poverty. So, if you're a kid now, you're the halfback or the whatever, wide receiver, Clemson, and your family is impoverished, and you have a chance to make $200,000 a year playing in this alliance league. Uh, I don't know. Your family, your, your mom is working at the local cafeteria sweeping floors. If that's struggling for work, you can get you can give them two hundred thousand dollars a year. I think that's a pretty big incentive. And to tell these kids, no way you shouldn't go because look, college is so much fun. Uh, meanwhile you're not making a cent off of it, you can't even have a job. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot to ask. So I I mean, I think there are multiple sort of options that would interest kids. I just I just don't know how realistic any of them are right now. Where do you think the potential to I mean, we'll see where if student-athletes actually get paid down the road and what that model is, but do you think if that were to happen and if, um, for example, if Nike wants to come in and, and sign Trevor Lawrence or Ed Oliver or whoever, do you think that would have any impact on it if, for example, players were allowed to be sponsored or got some extra cut or some extra compensation? Do you think that that would be a piece of the puzzle? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's the right thing to do. Uh, it would make players stop feeling like they're just being used. Um yeah, I mean, I'm in favor of it 100%. I just think it's crazy how much money these people make off the players. And so many of these kids come from low-income families, low-income school districts, uh, never go on to play in the NFL, don't get their college education. 
lives and, and take in a new direction. So, yeah, I mean, any, it's just not fair. Like, the, the biggest thing is it's not fair. So many of these kids grew up poor, and you pluck them out of low-income schools that are usually underfunded, uh, that are not drawing the best teachers around because you can't afford to see them. You put them on a beautiful college campus. You, you make so much money off of them. They don't make money. They don't go out to the pros. They don't get the education and promise of that. It's just such a flawed system. Hey, going back to your book, uh, before I let you go here, I'm curious, have you ever been in a position where, you, you know, you heard something, you know, a story or whatever that would be that would be great for a book, you know, whether it was the, uh, Brett Favre, Walter Payton, USFL, whatever, but you couldn't confirm it enough, and then after the book is published, you know, months or years down the road, you, you stumble across or, or you seek out confirmation, you're able to confirm that story later. Has it ever happened to you? I hate to give a lame answer, but I have not. I've had, I've had a lot of things I could not confirm that you don't use, but I've never... The classic, classic example of this, and it was horrible, it was um, Skip Bayless wrote a book about the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s, and he had in his book the trade that was visiting gay bars. And he didn't see him at gay bars, he just had been told he was at gay bars. He wrote it, it turned out not to be true. Um, and sometimes you're just better, I would have written that anyway, it's not... You're just better off sometimes swallowing your pen and swallowing your material and going ahead with something you don't feel comfortable with. It doesn't really happen that often. That's Jeff Perlman. Uh, if you haven't seen his latest book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, check it out. Hey, Jeff, thanks for chatting today. Take care. All right, thanks for having me. Before I move on here, a quick message from our friends at Enclosed. This Valentine's Day, how about something different for your wife or girlfriend? Something romantic, like a luxury gift service called Enclosed that delivers designer lingerie to your special lady every single month. Enclosed is like a flower of the month club, but with ultra high-end lingerie. And this isn't the cheap stuff. This is the kind of quality that will impress. Each month, you tell Enclosed what you think she would like. They choose the styles, and they send a custom lingerie gift. And, best part is, they back it up with a 100% size guarantee so you can't mess it up. If you join the thousands of couples that already love Enclosed, I'm going to give you a promo code. So right now, you can get $35 off your Enclosed gift. Go to EnclosedLingerie.com, E-N-C-L-O-S-E-D, Lingerie.com, Enter the code HOTROUTE at checkout to get $35 off any multi-month gift. That's EnclosedLingerie.com for $35 off the best gift this Valentine's Day. My opinion on, on what we were talking about, I think that the AAF has a much better chance of survival than the XFL. I think that if... Kind of like we were talking about the player allocation model. I think if the AAF puts all of this focus on this player allocation model with the regions, dividing it up, certain teams have the rights to certain colleges, uh, certain NFL teams, I think we get one CFL team apiece. If they put all this focus on this model like we were talking about, this model that worked well for the USFL, one of their very, very few good decisions, like he said, I think it will be a huge piece, and it almost becomes like this unofficial minor league. I think fans are going to follow their guys. Like, they're going to follow a, a Joel Lanyon, for example. A Scooby Wright. Remember him from Arizona? Actually, on Herosports.com, I just published a, a breakdown of all of the guys currently on active rosters in the AAF, uh, which schools have the most. And, and you run through some of the rosters. There are legitimate names on here. Like I mentioned, Scooby Wright. He's with the Arizona Hotshots. 
Uh, former uh, Arizona defensive end, I think he was a freshman All-American. Trevor Knight, Oklahoma and A&M, he's also in Arizona. Jordan Westerkamp, Aaron Murray, they're in Atlanta with the Legends. Trent Richardson, we mentioned him uh, talking with Jeff. He's with the Birmingham Iron. Blake Sims, former Alabama quarterback. I mean, you keep going down the list, and there are there are some uh, um, big names. Christian Hackenberg, Zach Mettenberger, they're both in Memphis. Uh, Lewis Murphy, remember him? Played for Florida, played for the Raiders in the NFL a little bit. He's in Orlando, the Orlando Apollos. How about Ronald Powell? Remember Ronald Powell? He was actually the former number one overall recruit. Bounced around the NFL a little bit. He's also in Orlando. B.J. Daniels. B.J. Daniels, the former USF quarterback. He's in Salt Lake, the Salt Lake Stallions. Uh, Over in San Antonio, the San Antonio Commanders. Head coach Mike Riley there. How about like David Cobb, player for the Gophers, Joel Lane, like I mentioned, Iowa State, Marquise Williams, former UNC quarterback, he's with the Commanders. What else we got? Marcus Baugh, Marcus Baugh, a former Ohio State tight end, he's playing with the San Diego Fleet, Gavin Escobar, I mean, he hasn't even been out of the NFL for that long, former Cowboys second-round pick from San Diego State, he's with San Diego, Bishop Sankey. Also with San Diego, remember Sankey, he was the first running back picked in that what was considered a very light running back class. I think it was like 2014. Tons of big names. Uh, you know, Jeff kind of went through it and mentioned, yeah, from a marketing standpoint, you got guys like Rick Neuheisel. He's in Arizona. Uh, Brad Childress, this actually came out recently. He was supposed to be the Atlanta coach. So Brad Childress was supposed to be the Atlanta Legends head coach. He resigned. Uh, Michael Vick is there as the OC. Mike Singletary, he's in Orlando. Mike Martz. Mike Martz is coaching the San Diego Fleet. Dennis Erickson, he's in Salt Lake. Like I said, Mike Riley in San Antonio. If you got a minute today, go check out Mike Riley's resume. And this is the latest thing in a wild resume. He's got FBS on there, D2, D3, CFL, NFL. I mean, he coached... Remember the league, so NFL Europe, but before it was NFL Europe, it was called the World League of Football, I I believe it was called the World American League of Football, something like that back in the 90s. He actually coached that San Antonio team for years, so he's back in San Antonio. Okay, I want to do a college basketball hot seat rundown, but first, one thing about what Everyone is talking about this week the Saints, uh, excuse me, Saints Rams officiating debacle. Just one thing about it, and I'll move on because everybody is talking about it. Everybody is beating this to absolute death. On Monday, some tweets came out that suggested the NFL could look at making penalties reviewable, and that would come for the competition committee. Uh, competition committee, Sean Payton is a part of that. I would be stunned if this happened. Do I think that some penalties could be reviewable? Sure. Like, I could see some things add to the list. Like, for example, right now, um, 12 men on the field, that is reviewable. I could see something like the D. Ford play, him lining up offsides. Ford, to be clear, he was clearly offsides. But if that play was close, I could see them making that type of play reviewable. Pass interference, interference cannot be reviewable. There is just no way. And I don't even I'm not even sure if that's just my opinion. I would be stunned if I think that the NFL believes that this is a good idea. I mean, just look at here for one reason. The catch rule. Look at the catch rule recently. I mean, these catch reviews have been a complete coin flip for a few years now. And the NFL's taking a lot of heat for it, which I think is a little bit over talked about. Yeah, the NFL doesn't look great, but they're still making massive money 
I mean, they're still getting these gigantic ratings. The Chief, Chiefs-Patriots, I think that had like a 31 rating last, uh, on Sunday night. And yeah, those those calls were rough. Like the missed P.I. call in the Saints game, the roughing the passer on Brady, the missed face mask on Goff. But those aren't going to change anything. So let's get that clear first. The NFL can't like love these officiating errors. They can't love any blunders that make them look bad. But these aren't going to move the needle at all. You know, I was listening to the Athlon Sports Cover 2 podcast last week, and Braden Gall, he did this awesome breakdown, this really simplistic breakdown of the whole playoff expansion conversation. And in it, he kind of reminded us of what nobody is really talking about in regards to UCF, that UCF just doesn't matter in this conversation. I mean, don't let anybody tell you that UCF's exclusion matters at all. I mean, this, the college football power brokers just don't care that UCF didn't make it. Jim Delaney doesn't care. Barry Alvarez doesn't care. Uh, Bob Bowlesby doesn't care. So let me get back on track here. The NFL, they, they don't need another coin flip review. I mean, yeah, that, that missed PI call, that would have been an easy one to overturn. They would have looked at that easy one to overturn. But if we're going to be getting these challenges on so many subjective calls, I mean, you could you could find P.I. on almost every single play. You could find offensive holding on almost every single play, defensive holding on almost every single play, and we'd have no clue what they were going to call. I wouldn't know if they're actually going to call pass interference or not. It'd be a total coin flip. I mean, I think it's hard enough to know what it catches. So I don't think there's... Anyway, there's no way we're going to get reviews for pass interference. I would be beyond shocked if they allowed another subjective review like that. Okay, that was my one thing for the efficiency debacle this week. Now let's move on. On to the hot seat. All of my hot seat conversations always come with a caveat. I have zero inside information on these. I mean, rarely am I going to suggest that a coach should be fired. I only suggest that for Ernie Kent because Ernie Kent is clearly not the right guy at Washington State. Washington State, please have some self-respect. Clearly, Ernie Ken is not the guy. He wasn't the guy when you hired him. He's not the guy now. But even though I don't have this inside information, I think we can use history, look back at historical similarities, expectations. We can look at other moves made by that athletic director. When did they come in? Where have they worked? Who else have they hired? And I think we can use that to make some educated guesses which coaches might be on the move, which coaches we need to watch. I mean, because we're sitting here, we're not even two months from Selection Sunday. I think we have seven weeks. We're seven weeks out from Selection Sunday this weekend. So not a ton of games left. We're only, what, 10, 11, 12 regular season games until we hit the college basketball offseason. So Ernie Kent, I think he's on the hot seat, and I think he should be fired. I mean, He's going to finish his fifth season with about 58 to 62 total wins, depending on how bad the Pac-12 this is. Pac-12 is this year to see how many bad wins they can get. So he's going to have about 60 wins in five years. It's averaging 12 wins a season. Yeah, I get it's Washington State. I understand it's one of the hardest jobs in the country. I understand that what's that's what made Tony Bennett such an appealing candidate for Virginia, because of what he did at a place that it's extremely difficult to win in. But, I mean, come on. I don't want to compare them, their situation to Gonzaga because Gonzaga is such a rare program, not only in college basketball, but in all of sports. But clearly, Mark Few and Gonzaga can find some talent to come 
to weigh depths of Eastern Washington. I mean, talent is going to go places. Ernie Kent just isn't the right guy. So number one, Ernie Kent, I think he is on the hot seat. I think he should be fired, and I actually do think he will be fired this season. Danny Manning, he's had a couple of nice recruits. I mean, he's recruited okay. He's developed a couple of different big men. But I think the last few seasons we're seeing why he was such a good assistant at Kansas and why he's maybe not the right guy to be a head coach. Yeah, they took a couple steps forward. It looked like he was finally moving the program in the right direction two years ago. I think it was in 2016-17. Yeah, it was it was 17 when they made uh, the NCAA tournament. They, they were lost that play-in game. He still has never gone over 20 wins. They will be lucky to win 12 to 13 games this season. So he's going to finish year five with averaging maybe about 14 wins per season. I mean, he's not going to get anywhere near 19 what he had two years ago. So we're looking at year five. Four of those years, he could have 13 or fewer wins. I think Danny Manning will be out again. He'll, he's going to finish worse than 10th again in, in the ACC. That'll be the fifth straight season for that. Four of his five, excuse me, four of his seasons thus far, he's finished 12th. 13th, 10th, and 14th ACC. I think Danny Manning's probably gone after this season. This is a really interesting one. I think Richard Pitino's on the hot seat for one reason. I think because of the new facilities, because of how good Minnesota high school basketball has gotten over the last, let's say, six to seven seasons, I feel like when uh, that Tyus Jones, Reed Travis, uh, Rashad Vaughn class came out, I think that was kind of the step in the right direction for Minnesota high school basketball. They had some you know, prominent players in the past, uh, Khalid Alamine, uh, Rick Ricker, Chris Humphrey, guys like that, but they've never been producing this much elite talent. And yeah, Richard Pertino is getting some of that, but he's not getting all of that. I mean, he got Daniel Turu this year, uh, Jarvis O'Mersa, Gabe Kalsher, but he did miss out on Trey Jones. That was Not really his fault. Once Tyus went to Duke, Trey's probably going to Duke too. But I think AD Mark Coyle, remember, he didn't hire him. Norwood Teague hired Richard Pitino, and that was kind of an interesting hire in itself. I think Norwood just really wanted to put his guy in there and put a stamp, and if if Pitino did win, Norwood can point to him and say, I did it, that kind of hire. But I think Mark Coyle, who who has been at Kentucky, he's been at Syracuse, I mean, he's seen teams win. He was even at Boise State when they started having a nice little run with basketball there. I think Mark Coyle is looking at all these Minnesota high school recruits and yeah, they're getting some of them and looking at their facilities and wondering who he could maybe hire there. And it looks like P.J. Fleck has football moving in the right direction. They're getting recruits. They're getting talent that they've never gotten. So I think Mark Coyle is sitting there looking, yeah, Richard Pitino, he, he might be a fine coach. Maybe we'll make the tournament once every three years. We're going to grab these three- and four-star kids from Minnesota. We're probably going to miss out on the five-star kids usually. We're rarely going to go out and go nationally and get these four- and five-star top 25, top 30 players. Maybe we'll get one every five years. Maybe we'll make the Sweet 16 every five years. I don't think that's going to fly. I think that if the Gophers do miss the tournament, especially after that ugly Illinois loss, I think that Patino will be fired because – I think Coyle knows that this is a pretty attractive job, given all those things that I talked about, and I think that Coyle would go after somebody huge. I'm not saying that a Greg Marshall would leave Wichita State, but I think that Coyle would have the type of money to make that happen. I think that if the Timberwolves or another NBA team does not hire Fred Hoiberg, he has to be priority number one for Mark Coyle. 
Staying in the Big Ten, Pat Chambers. I think Chambers has done a pretty decent job. He's recruited remarkably well to Penn State. I mean, when you're getting basketball talent to go to state college, last year that was a step in the right direction. I thought that they could be a tourney team this year. I actually think I had them in my preseason bracketology. I think they were a last four-in team. Kind of taking a step back this year, I think that this year maybe was the when Penn State was looking at it. Is he going to take the step forward? Is he going to kind of do what he did last year? Win, I think they won nine games in the Big Ten. Can he go 500 in the Big Ten again? I don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, a few more before we go here. How about Tad Boyle? He started off, you know, Pretty hot, former uh, Wichita State assist. Remember, he was the head coach at Northern Colorado. Came into Colorado. He had won 20 games four of his first five seasons. Made the NCAA tournament four of those first five seasons. Missed at the last two. I mean, this is the team that has struggled in a pretty weak Pac-12, and they went 8-10 and 10 in a really bad Pac-12 this season. Honestly, all of the Pac-12 coach, I think, 10 years down the road, we're going to look back and we'll have a better idea because we'll see the coach's movement. But I'd be curious what the athletics are talking about. Are they saying, yeah, the whole Pac-12 is bad, so how can we fire this guy? Or are they wondering, you know what, Tad Boyle is is going to struggle to win 15 games this season. He's won 36 the last two years combined. We need to be doing better. I'd be curious what the mindset is there for somebody like Tad Boyle. How about Josh Pastner? I think kind of like what I talked about for Minnesota, I think Georgia Tech is sitting there saying, what type of coach could we get here in Atlanta that could keep some of this talent in the Southeast, grab some of this elite talent in the Southeast? I mean, you look at, they went up to Temple, and I think they made one of the best hires in college football in the last five years in Jeff Collins. A former SEC coordinator has recruited the hell out of the area. I think that they go out and they realize they can make a hire like that and they wonder, is Josh Pastner really the right guy? I think there are a lot of similarities to Minnesota here where Josh Pastner, maybe he'll make a tournament every three, four, five years, and I understand that when he was hired, there was the expectation that it was going to take a little bit of time, but he was a little bit ahead of the schedule a couple of years ago, and I think he's going to be a victim of his own success, and Georgia Tech is going to look at and wonder who they could potentially get. Could they hire, again, we're just going out as an example here, could they hire Greg Marshall, get him back to the southeast? Could they take that leap, give Greg Marshall $5 million and get him back? I don't know, but I don't think it's that ridiculous to suggest that Georgia Tech can get a legitimate guy after seeing what they did by getting uh, Jeff Collins down there. A couple more guys. Jim Christian at Boston College started off really brutal. Boston College kind of hung with them. I mean, it, it is Boston College. Yes, their facilities are getting better. Yes, they've been able to get a little bit of talent. Yes, they do get that, that upset win every single season where you wonder, you know what, maybe they are heading the right direction. I don't think Jim Christian's a guy. And Billy Kennedy, I think this is interesting, kind of on those same levels. If Texas A&M is willing, I know football and basketball are a little bit different down there in College Station, but are they wondering, could they get somebody bigger? Could they go out and get whoever they want by throwing enough money at them? Maybe not necessarily this season, but if Jimbo gets football going, does that get the the donors' pockets even more loose? Do they start wondering who we could possibly get? Okay, you can find the High Motor Podcast on Twitter, at High Motor Pod. You can find me on Twitter, at Dowdy 88 Hey, thanks again to Jeff Perlman for chatting today. Uh, thanks to you all for listening. I'm going to be back next week. So in the meantime, follow the pod on Twitter and or get subscribed to get next week's podcast when it's available. 
I am Andrew Dowdy, and this is the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. Oh.